lovely to see so many of you here at the National Library today. Welcome to the library. My name is Kathy Pilgrim. I'm the Assistant Director General of the Executive and Public Programs Division. As we begin today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land that we are now privileged to call our own, to call home. Today we're here to learn from our Director of Exhibitions, Dr Guy Hansen, who co-created our revealing exhibition, 1968, Changing Times. You may have already had the opportunity to see it, but if not, I hope that you'll be inspired to visit the event today, to visit the exhibition today. There is no doubt that 1968 was a momentous year. Whether it was the war in Vietnam, student demonstrations, the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy, or the music of the time, there was a strong sense the world was rapidly changing. Australia was facing its own challenges with the swearing in of John Morton as Prime Minister following the disappearance of Harold Holt and the growing unrest about conscription for overseas military service. The opening of this beautiful building, the National Library's own, on the 15th of August 1968, a realisation of the vision of former Prime Minister Robert Menzies, was a moment of national pride and achievement amidst the national turbulence. And I hope it will come back in August this year to help us celebrate that 50th anniversary. Today, Dr Guy Hansen will explore what it was that made 1968 such a year of change for Canberra, Australia and the world. Please welcome Guy to share with us the significance of 1968. Uh, thank you very much, Kathy. Um, I might just start by showing you the exhibition now. So uh, I look out in the audience, I think that ad may have provoked some memories from 1968, but perhaps um, a more polite thing to say was none of you here are clearly old enough to remember 1968. <laughs> so, so uh, of course doing a show about 1968 makes me think, what was I doing in 1968? Well you can see what I was doing, I was standing just there in front of that perspex dome with my family. This photograph was taken at my father's place of employment, which was 3M in uh, North Ryde. Some of you might be familiar with the 3M building in North Ryde. 3M stands for the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company. This photo, I think, when I look back on it, is a classic depiction of a 1960s nuclear family. This is just the kind of corporate image that an international conglomerate like 3M liked to project. A clean cut white family looking to the future. Going by the expression on my face, I seem to be very impressed by the range of products being produced by 3M. I'm a little fellow smiling right at the front there. So. In some ways, this photo captures the ethos of Australia in the, in the 1960s. It represents a prosperous, modern Australia with a growing consumer economy. 
Whereas my grandparents had experienced the Depression and the Second World War, my parents grew up in Australia with increasing opportunities. The agriculture and mining sectors had boomed, and the Australian manufacturing sector was also growing, shielded by tariff, tariff barriers. At this stage, in 1968, the white Australia policy had only just been dismantled. Um, it's true that there'd been some bumps on the road in the 50s and 60s, but overall, it was a time of growing confidence and prosperity. The stoic generations of the 1930s and 1940s were giving way to the baby boomers. The new generation were confident in the future and keen to see the world change, and change was coming. By the 1970s, Australian society would be transformed. It's this idea of change that helped us come up with the title Changing Times for the exhibition. 1968 was the midpoint in a period of very rapid social change. The bookends on either side of this change are the retirement of R.G. Menzies in 1966 and the election of E.G. Whitlam in 1972. The Australia of 1966 is a very different place to the Australia of 1972. In this exhibition, we look at this period of change by focusing on what was happening in one particular year, 1968. As Cathy mentioned, there's another very important reason why we chose 1968 as the year to take our deep dive into the 60s. 2018 is the 50th anniversary of the opening of this building. Looking back at 1968 provides a great opportunity to place the opening of this building in the context of the history of Australia and the history of the world. And as I'm sure you all know, 1968 was a very iconic year in world history. There are amazing events and personalities to explore. The library's collections are a fantastic resource for exploring 1968. Myself and my colleagues Grace Blakely-Carroll and Walter Kudrich had the great pleasure of surveying the library's collections and looking at the material which would, uh, would, would enable us to look into what happened in that year. So, uh, when we did this exhibition, the metaphor I've often used is that it's like a series of Russian dolls. The innermost doll is the opening of the library, this building. So I, I, that's right at the core of the exhibition, and that's sort of the end room, room four. Around that uh, doll is wrapped another doll, which is the history of Canberra, what was happening in Canberra in 1968. And around that is wrapped the idea of what was happening in Australia in 1968. And the introductory room looks at what was happening in the world. So that's the structure which I've used to explore 1968. Um, so when we look at 1968, there was a strong sense that the world was going crazy. In some ways it sort of reminds me a little bit of 2018. So what was happening in 1968? Uh, at, at the beginning of the year, there was a civil war in Nigeria and uh, the Biafra famine was beginning to unfold, which was uh, uh, one of those major African famines which began to, to, to really impact on, on our consciousness of, uh, of what was happening in the world. Of course, there would be many other major famines which would, would receive similar, similar coverage, but the Biafra famine was a very significant one. Also, early in the year, there was the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, this is uh, uh, when the, the North uh, launched a series of coordinated attacks across the South, and it began to bring into the question whether America could win the war. Um, even though, retrospectively, it would seem that America was military winning the battles held during the Tet Offensive, at the time, it looked like it was all going to hell in a handbasket and the war was unwinnable. So, psychologically, it had a huge impact, um, uh, the Tet Offensive. Another thing which occurred 
early in the year, was uh, the North Koreans um, captured an American spy ship, uh, which was the Pueblo. And there was, uh, um, you know, significant speculation about would there be another outbreak in the Korean War? They actually, uh, they, they took 83 American sailors prisoner and they took the ship back to North Korea, and it's still there. That um, particular ship is still in North Korea, and if you happen to be in North Korea, you can visit it. It's a tourist destination. Um, so that idea of possible war with North Korea was very much uh, on the horizon at the beginning of 1968. Another event which people remember from 1968 is the Prague, Prague Spring. spring. Um, you had... Uh, Dubček in Czechoslovakia begin a project of trying to reform socialism. Of course, the Prague Spring was crushed by the Soviet Union, and it wasn't a few months later, Russian tanks rolled into Prague. Here you can see the covers of two Time magazines, which uh, captured uh, that moment. And in the exhibition, we use magazines like Time and Life to illustrate some of the milestones of the year. Um, I'm sure many of you uh, will know about the demonstrations in Paris in 1968. And here you can see uh, a spread from Paris Match showing the, the um, confrontation between students and uh, French police. Uh, in the exhibition, we're very lucky to have borrowed from the National Gallery um, some of the street art from 1968. And this is one of many posters which were decorated, which were used to decorate the streets of Paris in May 1968. Um, the Art students took control of the Ecole de Beaux Arts in Paris and they began to make it a factory to produce propaganda supporting um, the protest movement outside. Um, so the National Gallery has lent us this poster and you can see it in the exhibition today. Of course, Paris was only one of many cities which were in, um, in turmoil uh, in 1968. There were major um, riots and protests in cities across the world, in America, in London, um, in Grosvenor Square, famous demonstration from the American Embassy, in Berlin, in Mexico City, and in Tokyo. So there was a sense that the world was falling apart. There was protest everywhere, and, and things were very much uh, uncertain what was going to happen. Let's turn to American politics and see what was going on. And in America, events were very dramatic as well. In April, you have the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And here you can see an image of the... Uh, funeral procession after his death. American cities erupted in a series of riots after this. People were bereft of the idea that Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Of course, not long after that, um, actually just before Martin Luther King was assassinated, um, President Johnson had announced, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as president. That was very dramatic. Johnson who had put so much effort into the civil rights agenda and into building the great society had decided he had no chance of winning the next election, but the Vietnam War had become the major thing which he had to concentrate and he felt that he had to bow out in order to conduct that. So that left Americans with deep sense of uncertainty. Their president, president wasn't going to run again. Major leader had been killed. And then not long after that, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. So Kennedy had, uh, following uh, Johnson's announcement, Kennedy had decided to run for president, that after winning the Californian primary, he was shot in the uh, Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles in California. Um, so another, another important leader in America was gone. So America was in a, in a very, very difficult place at that time. 
And at the end of the year, you had a very partisan political campaign where you had the Republican Richard Nixon run against Hubert Humphrey. Um, Nixon uh, went on to win the election. The Democrats were deeply divided over the issue of the war with uh, um, McGovern and Eugene McCarthy running as anti-war uh, candidates and Hubert Humphrey being eventually nominated for the Democrats. So divided Democrats at a very violent and disruptive convention in Chicago in August weren't able to beat um, Richard Nixon, Richard Milhouse Nixon, who, uh, who was promising to go forward and prosecute the war in Vietnam. So you, you, can, you can get it, when I look at 1968, you get a really strong sense of uh, um, we can play that game, what if? If you take some of these events and think, what if Kennedy wasn't assassinated? What if, um, what if the Democrats had won the 1968 election on an anti-Vietnam war platform? What would have happened? We can speculate, it didn't happen, Nixon won, the war went on. So I can't talk about 1968 without talking about music. I think it was a, an incredibly important year in popular music. Some very significant albums were released uh, in, in 1968. Uh, the White Album came out in 1968. The Rolling Stones' uh, Beggar's Banquet came out in 1968. Cream's Disraeli Years actually came out at the end of 1967, but it dominated the charts in 1968. And um, uh, Jimi Hendrix uh, had one of his major albums out with his cover of um, Bob Dylan's song All on the Watchtower. So there's all these major um, moments in popular music which, you, which went on to dominate the playlists of uh, radio stations for years to come. And I think you can still tune into a radio station in Canberra today and hear some of the songs which I've, I've got up here. What was happening in the world of books? Uh, and this was one of the more challenging aspects of, of doing this exhibition, was selecting some of the titles which came out in uh, 2001, uh, sorry, in, in 1968. And if you go down to the exhibition, you'll see uh, a selection of books which were published in, in uh, 1968. I did select books which did very well on the New York Times bestseller list, and also books which I think have gone on to have a lasting uh, a lasting impact um, and are still read today. So Tom Wolfe, um, with the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, creating a new genre of writing and new journalism. 2001 Space Odyssey, which of course has the, uh, the incredibly powerful computer who is very focused on doing the task which it has been given and not necessarily taking into account what that means for the humans for whom it's working. Um, I think that's a story which still remains relevant today. And uh, Ursula Wynn, um, with her Earthsea trilogy, of course, Ursula Gwynn died this year. Um, Arthur Haley, going to the airport, literally the airport spectrum of novels. Um, I included this one because I think the airport was really uh, created this genre of uh, uh, blockbuster novels, which then turned into blockbuster movies. So uh, I think airport's quite an interesting novel. Wouldn't necessarily want to read it, but I think it, it's sort of like a, a turning point um, in, in that sort of literature. And of course you have uh, Solzhenitsyn uh, writing his books in, in the Soviet Union, and you have an author like uh, John Updike John who was um, exploring what the promiscuity um, and sexual relations in the late 1960s, what, what sort of social impact that would have. So they're just some of the novels. I'm sure you have your own favourites from that period which you'd, you'd like to remember. So moving from the world stage back to Australia, 
Um, I can't talk about 1968 without first talking about what happened in December 1967. And that, of course, was the disappearance of Harold Holt, who, having gone away for the weekend um, to his holiday house in Port Sea, Victoria, uh, then um, was lost in the surf off Cheviot Beach, and um, his body wasn't recovered and was presumed drowned. So, at the very beginning of 1968, Australia did not have um, a Prime Minister. The great object, um, they had an acting Prime Minister, but Harold Holt had just gone missing. One of the interesting objects in the exhibition is the briefcase, which he took away with him on that weekend, um, which had uh, government documents inside it, and it was um, the federal police took possession of that briefcase as they were investigating um, why he'd gone missing, and that briefcase remained in the collections of Australian archives um, till this day, and uh, we um, were able to borrow it for the show. So um, it's quite interesting to look at that personal possession and that, that photograph of Holt when, and reflect on, on what occurred there. The situation at the end of uh, 1967 was uh, John McEwen, um, the leader of the Country Party, was Prime Minister, and he had given the Liberal Party uh, basically an ultimatum saying that I will not serve under William McMahon, um, and said that he basically said, do not select him as uh, your leader. And so the Liberal Party decided to elect John Gorton, who was actually in the Senate at this time, uh, to become Prime Minister. And this was a very big departure um, from, uh, for the Liberal Party. John Gorton was a different sort of leader. He was, he was quite a larrikin at the time and very, very distinctly Australian and was giving expression to a kind of a new type of Australian nationalism. Uh, and I think you're beginning to see this big transformation from the days of Menzies with the, with the election of a, of a character like uh, Gordon. And uh, the, the, bulletin, uh, sorry, the bulletin was asking the question of whether Gordon would, would, would he work out. But he did in that first year do quite well as Prime Minister and, and did become quite a distinctive leader. Uh, here you can see him towards the end of 1968 on a, on a visit to Vietnam. And you can see how... Uh, how comfortable he was uh, visiting Australian troops. He'd served in the Royal Australian Air Force during World War II. Um, he's actually been in a couple of plane crashes and bore the injuries on his face. Um, but you can see, he, when you look at photographs of him in Vietnam, he always appears to be very comfortable in, um, I think sometimes people use the term of a khaki prime minister. He, he, did, he did leverage off uh, the um, Vietnam War and he was a strong supporter of the Vietnam of course, the Labor Party had its own uh, leadership struggles in 1968 as well. Um, there was a period where it appeared that Whitlam, Whitlam actually, when facing off with sections of his party, uh, offered his resignation, and he, uh, he, he was re-elected and was able to start a process of reform of the Labor Party to make it much more electable. So you, you're seeing a period of change here. The Liberals have a new leader. The Labor Party is giving itself over to turning into a more electable party. And of course, this would all unfold until you get to the point that the Labor Party is elected in 1972, and you're seeing the end of a very long period of uh, coalition rule in the country. So, one of the biggest issues in uh, 1968, um, around the world, but in Australia as well, was uh, Vietnam. Here's a photograph of uh, Australian forces in 1968 in Vietnam. It's at this point in the war, most probably a lot to do with the Tet Offensive, that support for the war in Australia had really begun to turn. 
it had previously had uh, majority support, but by 1968, um, the majority of Australians were beginning to be against the war. Um, here you have the uh, 80th Australian Task Force space map in, um, in UEDAT. We have this in our collection. I actually, uh, the other day I was, um, Tim Fisher, the former Deputy Prime Minister, happened to be visiting the library and asked to be taken on a tour of the exhibition. And I showed him around and he was, he actually was serving in Vietnam in 1968. And he uh, was very impressed with this map and stood in front of it for some time and was able to point out exactly where his tent was in 1968. Um, so the issue of Vietnam in 1968, one of the things which made it very unpopular in Australia was, was uh, uh, compulsory national service. Uh, and if you actually, you, you, if you were doing national service, there was a good chance you would actually serve in Vietnam. Now this is very controversial, and if you look back through Australian history, you can see why. In World War I, there'd been two uh, plebiscites, both of which had rejected conscription. In World War II, conscription had only been on a limited basis in direct defence of Australia, so up into New Guinea, so they, Australian conscripts didn't serve uh, further afield. Um, and yet in the Vietnam War, Australians were being sent uh, as conscripts to fight um, in Vietnam. And, and that was a very controversial issue, which I think uh, undermine the support for the war. One of the prominent groups who were against um, the Vietnam War and whose, whose papers are held by the library uh, was Save Our Sons movement. Here you can see a really fascinating photograph um, which was taken in Marrickville at the Marrickville recruitment station for the Australian Army. And you can see uh, the protesters standing there respectfully with their banner. And I like this photograph because it goes against the perception of uh, protesters as sort of long-haired hippies or, or just students. Here you can see middle-class mums protesting against the war. And we're very lucky we were able to track down that actual banner, which is in the exhibition. So you can see it downstairs if you haven't already. Moving away from Vietnam and back to Australia, uh, this is an object which we selected for the exhibition, which I'm, I, I particularly like. I love the, the graphic design and what it represents. I think it speaks to a, a, an older view of, of, of the continent, um, an older view of Australia as basically being this big quarry or farm where we can pick things up and grow things and sell them and make lots of money. And we've got some interesting animals as well. So I think this is a kind of a perception of uh, progress and development uh, which was quite common in, in, in the 1960s and that one graphic sort of captures some of those ideas. If we're talking about Australia, it's not long before, if you want to talk about Australian culture, that you have to talk about sport. So what was happening in Australian sport in 1968? One of the uh, major things which was, was happening um, was the Mexico Olympics. And Australia, of course, um, was represented there at the Mexico Olympics. And one of the most famous incidents which occurred was Peter Norman, the um, Australian sprinter, had won a silver medal in the 200 metre sprint. And he had, in support of the two African-American sprinters who were doing a black power salute, was wearing a, a little um, civil rights badge on his, uh, on his jacket. Um, and he was supportive of their protest. Um, and he talked to them about his protest before, uh, before they uh, went to the podium to receive their medals. And Peter Norman was punished by the Australian athletics um, people over this. Um, he never got to represent Australia again, even though he was the fastest sprinter in Australia. They didn't 
didn't like the fact that he'd uh, sort of, even though he wasn't actively involved in politics, they were aware of his support for those sprinters. So they basically blackballed him from uh, being in the Australian Olympic team after that. Another um, sporting event is which occurred in 1968 is the London to Sydney Marathon. I, uh, I really like um, this uh, graphic because it shows the overland route between Australia and London, which was a route which some people would catch a ship to England and then drive back over this way to get back to Australia or vice versa. So it was something, it was something that people actually used to do and of course this rally went on this route. And you can see that um, you've, got, uh, you've got the rally going through places which now would be impossible to go, to, go through, particularly going through, um, uh, coming into Afghanistan and places like that. So it's a very, very, I think this, this sort of single image captures one of the things which has really changed from 1968 uh, to the present. Um, another sporting event from 1968 was Lionel Rose um, became uh, a world um, boxing champion. He'd beaten Fighting, fighting Karada in uh, Tokyo in Japan, and uh, that made him uh, the first Indigenous uh, world boxing champion, Australian Indigenous world boxing champion, and he was a uh, he was a major personality and celebrity in Australia at this time and even went on to have some success as a, as a pop star as well. So uh, um, I think a very interesting uh, and attractive photo of Lionel Rose there. Um, other things which happened, 68, the Australians went to England uh, on an Ashes tour and it was a, it was a drawn um, series uh, in, in England. Um, Carlton won the Premiership and uh, in Sydney, there was a World Cup um, of Rugby League and Australia beat France. Of course, in the 60s, France was quite a power in Rugby League, which is uh, they're not really so much these days. Um, what were you watching on TV in 1968? Well, you could, it wasn't that long since This Day Tonight had started. Skippy, of course, was doing very well and uh, going on to be a, a major international success for Australian TV, uh, and also, you could see Leonard Teal in Homicide. Interesting to think back, in most Australian cities, there were just two or three channels. We were all watching the same TV, most probably talking about the same TV, rather than having the huge variety that we have now. Fashion, um, you have a designer like Prue Acton, uh, sort of responding to uh, the fashion, uh, changes in fashion around the world. You can see some of this down in the exhibition. What was happening in music in Australia, the super group in Australia, uh, in the most popular um, Australian group, was the Seekers. Um, and they had came back early in the year for a, a tour of uh, uh, Australia, and it was around the middle of the years that the Seekers actually broke up. So um, this was the end of uh, one of the most successful Australian groups. Um, in terms of international acts who came to Australia, um, the Monkees came in 1968, and The Who and The Small Faces came. And of course, The Who distinguished themselves um, while visiting by, uh, there were complaints about sound and behavior of members of the group. There was an incident on one domestic flight where uh, the band members were said to have had too much to drink. <laughs> and um, they, when they arrived at Essington Airport, they were escorted off the plane by the police. And in one account I've read, they were then taken to a special VIP area at the airport and given more drinks. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how you dealt with things in the 60s. 
So uh, the counterculture in Australia, um, what was going on? Well, we have, uh, I think one of the emblems of, of that in, in Australian popular culture is Oz magazine. Now, of course, there was a Sydney Oz magazine, which had started earlier in the 60s and had been involved in an obscenity trial. But in 67, half of the editorial team, Richard Neville, Martin Sharp, went over to uh, the UK and they established London Oz. So in the exhibition, we've got a, a really good display of both Sydney Oz and London Oz. When you look at the magazine, you can really see the contribution of uh, the graphic artist Martin Sharp, and you can see how this magazine provided space for him to develop his skills and go on to be one of the major, um, most important graphic artists of Australia in the late 1960s. Um, I think actually, when you get beyond the graphic art, though, there's not much in the magazines. They're quite strange to read. But uh, <laughs> all I'm asking you to do is look at the pictures. Downstairs. Gender relations in the 1960s. <laughs> so this photograph actually isn't in the exhibition downstairs, but I did find it in my research and I desperately wanted to use it because I thought it said so much. Um, so you can see a different idea of uh, how employment was organised. Conditions for women, um, their pay rates were lower, they often had to leave work once they were married, um, and obviously you couldn't have children, you were meant to go home. And um, this particular photograph was a photograph taken from, I think, the Dunlop factory in, in Sydney, and it was just part of a process of documenting uh, the production processes at Dunlop. So um, we did include some material in the exhibition, which was about the beginnings of the campaign for equal pay for women, which of course is a campaign which is still continuing today, it still has not been fully realised but you can see the roots of that campaign and, and many other feminist issues um, starting back in the, the 1960s. Other things too, like control of uh, contraception um, and, and things like that as well. So feminism in 1968 has some, uh, has, is beginning to emerge as a major force and of course it becomes bigger as you get into the 70s. In the world of uh, literature uh, in the late 60s, Europe, while, while there had been a long period where many um, bright young things in Australia had, as soon as they were able to do, jumped on a ship and gone to London to try and impress the world, there were also, by the late 60s, a group of writers who were staying in Australia and were writing about Australia and reflecting on what it meant to be Australia, Australian. So we've got some lovely illustrations downstairs by Louis Kahn and um, Frank Hardy, Judith Wright, Thomas Canary, who were all writing and publishing in Australia at this time. We've got a selection of some of the books and poems and journals which were coming out of the intellectual ferment in 1968 in Australia. So we're getting down in my Russian dolls now. We're heading, we're heading towards uh, Canberra. And I think that the really interesting thing to think about is that in how small a town Canberra really was in um, 1968. Uh, so many of the features which we now think of as the national camp capital weren't actually in place at that time. In this direct area here, um, you had the Provisional Parliament House behind us, and you had the War Memorial across the lake. The lake hadn't been in place for that long, and you had, in a sense, almost that sense of open paddocks around here in the parliamentary triangle. So the opening of this building in 1968 was a very significant moment because it was actually a reflection of, the, of, of 
moving beyond just servicing the needs of the federal parliament, um, just straightforward public service buildings in the parliament. This was a, a cultural institution which was really to serve the needs of not just the people of Canberra, but of, of broader Australia. So it's a significant moment. So you've, you've got, I think, a, you, you, you're beginning to see that new vision of Canberra as a national capital really beginning to come fruition, and that's reflected in, in the, uh, the opening of this building. And here is a, a design from that period. I should, I think it's good to pause and just consider that the library, of course, has a longer history than this building. It didn't come into existence in 1968. It actually goes back to 1901, the establishment of the Federal Parliament, and was actually in the, uh, what is the Victorian Parliament Library, was actually the first home of the National Library. And then, of course, the library also existed in the Provisional Parliament House, um, and then, of course, in its building, which was over on King's Avenue. And that building was, um, after the opening of this building, that building was pulled down. So you can see some images of, of the library history before it actually came here in 1968. I'm not going to talk a lot about the design and construction of the library because that is going to be the topic of another talk uh, in supporting um, uh, this exhibition program. Um, my colleague Grace Blakely-Carroll will talk about um, the architecture of the building at another time. But we do have some beautiful material in our collection relating to the design by Walter Bunny. Um, just, you'll notice that the original design featured two additional wings which would be on either side, one on Patrick White Lawn and the other on the uh, car, car park um, behind us. So you could imagine that, you can see that Bunny's original design was to provide room for growth for the library so these additional annexes could be built. Of course those annexes never were built. You can see the the beautiful, um, you can see the Oriental Studies Room, which is actually the Asian Studies uh, Collection um, Room, which is still in existence today. That's one of the rooms which has survived. And you see the beautiful drawings down there. Thank you. Um, the, another really important feature, which Grace will talk about in detail um, when she gives her talk, is the beautiful bespoke furniture. So the um, furniture designer, Fred Ward, used Australian timbers to prepare um, purpose-built furniture for the library and some of that's on display downstairs and when Grace gives her talk she'll tell you more about that. I just love this photograph, um, it's a Max Dupain photograph of the reading room as it was in 1968 and you can see that the major features of the reading room are still extant and it is recognisable and you can see that beautiful um, bespoke furniture on display there. Other aspects of the building, um, which I think are very worth considering, are uh, the, the beautiful stained glass windows by Leonard French and the uh, Tom Bass, Bass relief above the doors as you come in. Um, I think Grace will talk about those when she gets to her talk as well. Such a beautiful slide, just stole it and put it in because I think it's so gorgeous. And we've got it with some of that materials explained down in the uh, exhibition. So, I wanted to finish on a bit more of a positive note because 1968 um, is quite a bleak uh, and controversial year. There's a lot happening in the world and much of it is not very happy. But I do think the year finished on a very positive note, which was the Apollo 8 mission, uh, which was part of the NASA program. The NASA program all coming from uh, Kennedy's original promise that um, America would put a man on the moon. And uh, they had to go through a series of Apollo missions 
improving the technology, improving the technology to make that possible. And Apollo 8, which occurred in December 1968, was a very important moment in that uh, technological development or evolution because it was the mission, the first um, manned mission, I say manned because it was manned, where they orbited the moon and this very famous photograph called Earth Rising was taken, which uh, where the astronauts had this perspective which no one had ever had before, being on the other side of the moon and seeing the Earth rise, sort of as a, as a sort of uh, fragile globe in the space. And I think that was a very important um, vision which NASA provided to the world. And they very generously provide that photograph free of charge to the library so we could display it. So, 1968, the exhibition, um, lots happened. I think it's a great way of celebrating this 50th birthday of the library. those that particularly challenged and inspired us as Australians. We do have some time for questions this afternoon, so if you'd like to pose a question to Guy, please put your hand up, we've got a microphone so that we can all hear your question, and I open it to the floor. Questions, please. As somebody whose birthday came up in the ballot <laughs> right. for national service, what proportion of people, uh, or men who were called up, didn't actually uh, serve? To be honest, I, I don't know what the figures are. Um, I, I don't think you inevitably serve if you, if you, if you um, came up. And, um, the Australian forces in Vietnam were that large, and quite most compared to the United States, but uh, obviously quite a large number did go. But I'm sorry, I just don't know. Um, probably I meant more what number uh, of people actually, actually agreed to go. To oh, I think the vast majority did agree to go, um, but there were some very famous conscientious objection, objectors. Um, I think the most famous is Simon Townsend, um, uh, and there's, there's some material about Simon Townsend in the display below. But uh, quite a number of people went to jail rather than, than go overseas, and it was, um, they were prisoners of conscience. Mm. Or else did they PhDs? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you very much for the lecture and the display downstairs. It's terrific, especially the music. <laughs> My question is, that ferment that happens in 1968, was that primarily demographic? Was it the baby boomers were 18? I must admit, I think that that is the, the prosperity and the freedom. I think if you were a teenager in the Depression, you weren't thinking about changing the world, you were thinking about surviving. And if you were a teenager in World War II, you were thinking about the war. And I think it's when you get to the 60s that you've got a generation of young people who have a good education, they've got access to things like motor cars and music, and um, I think that completely changes the way they look at the world. The world wasn't just something to be survived. It was something you could have fun. It was a, it was a consumer economy. It was a leisure economy. So yes, a complete change of, of how you see the world. And I think that does really change the character. And there's other demographic forces which are coming through in Australia. A lot more young people too. Like so very, the, the, there's a lot of babies born after World War II, so you, you've got a demographic bulge as well. So a lot of young people with money and time and um, feeling happy, it's going to change the world. 
short answer to the lady in the front. I was in the first call-up that came out. But it was being done and protracting a uh, university career to 1972 that saved me. Yes. And so I you just have deferment. Big bump. Deferment. You're able to do it. deferment. Yeah. Extra subject. I'm not sure whether that is a badge of honour or not <laughs> in respect of the people who went. But I know that after the election of Gough Whitlam, the Monday after I received a telegram, that you don't have to come for a medical, I've been putting it off. I had colds. The other observation that I think is Cole Joy and Johnny O'Keefe were very big, and Brian Henderson and John Walls, and the radio. Yes. I grew up in Wyala, we listened to 3AW on the wireless, you know, from Melbourne, uh, to listen to the DJs at night and this sort of stuff. Yeah, it was a fascinating talk, thank you. And no doubt listening to the test series on your crystal radio set as well. <laughs> but it, it, um, the, the, the great challenge of doing a show like this is there's so many things you can look at. And um, I think we've got something like 260 objects in the exhibition, and we could have put another 500 in. And you mentioned um, uh, Normie Rowe was one of the biggest pop stars, and Johnny Farnham. Um, and uh, you, you're, not, you're going to hate me for this, because his big hit in 68 was saving the cleaning lady. <laughs> you're going to have that in your head for the rest of the day. <laughs> so I'm sorry about that. But, uh, you know, there's so much which is happening in 1968. And it is, I think it is a remarkable year, because when you begin to list some of the things which occurred in 1968, many of them are very memorable and clearly left a very long impression. Ainsley got to get a Guernsey? Uh, <laughs> very good question. Uh, we, no, she doesn't. Um, and that was because the amount of space which I spent on Australian politics was, was quite um, uh, small. And it's actually one case downstairs. Uh, she was working as, uh, she, she became um, Gordon's principal private secretary, or effectively chief of staff. Um, her papers are held by the library, um, and she is a very significant figure from that period. Her papers, when we were researching this exhibition, actually there was a restriction on them. I actually wasn't allowed to see the papers. Um, the restriction was originally in place until her death. She's just died um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but actually, not long ago, she changed restriction and um, she's given, uh, she's having, she organised for an authorised biography, which has been researched, and the biographer um, has first look at those papers. And until such times that biography is um, finished, those papers will remain closed. And when that biography is finished and published, then they will, those papers will be open. Um, uh, so, I, you know, so yes, we didn't go into Ainsley Gotto, and we didn't go into Ainsley Gotto's relationship with Prime Minister. We, we sort of uh, we remain mute on that. <laughs> I wondered what was um, happening with Indigenous affairs in 1968. Yes, um, of course, the big anniversary in terms of Indigenous affairs is the previous year with the referendum. Uh, so there is. Um, there are issues in relation uh, to the, um, oh, the Gurindji um, 
there are things which are going on in relation to Aboriginal land rights in this campaign, but it's not a major feature of, uh, of um, 1968. And using that frame of reference, that just meant that what was the Indigenous thing that we picked up from 68? And it tended to be Lionel Rose, because he, he was really quite unique in the fame and fortune that he acquired as an Indigenous person. Of course, later on, there'd be athletes like Elon, Elon Gulagong, but really Lionel Rose was a trailblazer at, at that time. So um, um, we did talk a lot about how would we include Indigenous Australia, but in a sense, we did try and keep to the period of 1968. We crept over a little bit into 1967, a little bit into 1969 at times, but um, yes, it's a, it's a good question. Thank you very much, Guy. Please thank Guy again. Experience, our wonderful volunteers provide guided tours of the exhibition at 10.30am on Tuesdays, Thursdays and on the weekend. And this weekend, as part of our Enlighten activities here at the library, um, Guy and co-curator Grace will be taking tours of the exhibition at 7pm on Friday and Saturday night. So once again, thank you for joining us here at the library today and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you.